welcome to the podcast about interesting, everyday people. I'm Daniel Lance. I'm Paul Gilman, and this is Podzo One. Zachariah Hani Jambo is currently a student at the African Leadership University in Kigali, Rwanda. He was born in Khartoum, Sudan, although he is of South Sudanese origin, specifically of the Moru tribe. His family moved to Cairo, Egypt when he was just three, and he grew up there under tenuous circumstances. For example, he and his family had to avoid the Egyptian authorities until his father, a professor, was able to secure registration with the UN High Commissioner for Refugees. He went on from Cairo to study at the African Leadership Academy in Johannesburg, South Africa, and had a brief stint in Uganda before ending up in Kigali. This episode, Zach tells us about his life, his travels, adventures, and his hopes for the future. So here's Zach Handy. Zachariah Haney Jombo, welcome to Podsto One. Very excited to talk to you today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man, we're really excited. Uh, you are so you were born in uh, in South Sudan, but when you were born, it wasn't South Sudan. It was just still part of Sudan, right? No, no, yeah. I mean, I was I was born in uh, Khartoum, Sudan. So at that time, it was only it was only one country, and yeah, that's what like for a large part of my. For a large part of uh, my life, I've always known myself as, uh, as a Sudanese citizen until 2011 when all that had to change and I became uh, a South Sudanese citizen. Like, uh, so you were born, or, or, so, so Khartoum is actually in, uh, in like regular Sudan uh, and then, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but, you're, but you consider yourself South Sudanese. Yeah, I am South Sudanese because of my mom because she's yeah she was born there so that automatically makes me mm-hmm. south sudanese yeah but i can also claim to be sudanese because i was born in Khartoum, sudan so what were the uh uh differences between like south sudan and it's just regular sudan right uh, you know culturally and with the people yeah so okay i i, I mean myself i don't even not that much, but okay, I will explain to you. So basically the main differences is that like there are a lot of like there are a lot of differences. So the northern part of the country, which is now Sudan, consider themselves as uh they're Arabs, they consider themselves as Arab and there are also a bunch of other tribes and majority of the people in the north are Muslims. And then the ones in the south are is just made up of different around sixty five tribes actually. So, yeah, like, uh, during that time, Sudan was known as one of the most diverse countries uh, in the world because they have, like, around close to a thousand languages, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Yeah, so it was, it was two, two countries. I mean, it was one country, but it was very diverse with a lot of people. So that itself was a problem because the South has always seen themselves as Africans and then the North was the North were trying to push some of their ideologies, things like religion, which was problematic because for us, for for the people in the South, they just felt like they don't really fit into that category. And even that, like even the geographic differences, like the climate is very different. Like the climate in the in the South is different from the one in the South. So you can literally just tell that those that these two parts of like these two regions that make up 
this whole country called Sudan are very different from each other. But then they're still forced to be known as the Sudan because of the colonial background and the way that the British were uh, doing things. Because, yeah, before the 1950s, before 1956, when Sudan um, became an independent, what the British did was they literally divided the South and the North. They literally just caught up the South and they were, uh, the way they were ruling it, the ruling as it was part of Uganda. So, yeah, like just looking at that, you can just tell that it was already like, mm. being prepared to be a different country. But after mm. the independence, that changed because the Sudanese wanted to unify the country. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, it's interesting, uh, like trying to nationalize a country when there are so, like you said, thousands of different languages, thousands of different mm-hmm. tribes. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. fabric, the fabric of like the people just doesn't really match nationalism. Uh, but it's awesome that, that it happened. Um, you're, so you had to leave uh, Sudan at a very young age. Uh, can you tell us a little about, about that, uh, how that happened and why? Yeah, so I was around three years old and my sister was around, I don't know, four and a half years old. Yeah, so at that time, like my mom has like, already left South Sudan like a long time ago. And yeah, she just ended up living in Sudan for a couple of years. And then during that time, my aunt has already, like, when I was born in, like, 1995, yeah, that's when she moved into, she moved to, she moved to Cairo. So she, had, she decided to tell my mom, okay, why don't you, you know, come to Egypt? Maybe there's a, an opportunity for you to kind of be resettled. So that made my mom to just decide, okay, we're packing. We're just going to go to uh, Egypt because there will be better opportunities for us and even for her to be resettled to a different, uh, like a third country. So at that time, it was mainly three countries. It was the U.S., uh, Canada, and Australia. I think even until now, it's still the same case. So yeah, so we just just decided, yeah, my mom just uh, packed everything, got uh, bought a ticket for uh, a boat ticket, a train ticket. So yeah, so we started with a train for us. And I still find it funny that I can remember all the details of that journey because I was very young, but I couldn't, I can can remember how it was like waking up really early, trying to get all these, uh, like a yellow card, passport, all these things just to, like to prepare us to be able to travel. And then we got on the train and it was, it was a really long journey because you can, like all I was able to see was just a massive desert. Like the train was just going on and on and on. It was like the whole night of like traveling. And then, you get to, I think, yeah, you get to Aswan. No, not Aswan. You get to a port called Wadi Hafa Port. So it's basically, it's the port that connects Sudan to the Red Sea. So let, let me pause I, you for a second. Um, yeah. And let's get, let, I want to pull up a map. Uh, so, yeah. um, Paul, uh, there should be like a little shield at the bottom. Uh, and then if you click on it, there should be something about, you're, uh, you're muted right now. <laughs> Technical difficulties. Uh, it happens once an episode. I forget <laughs> that I'm see. on mute. I, I, yeah, I was not looking at either one of you. I was trying to find the map to go to. So I, I'm, I'm almost there. Give me a second. Okay. okay. So are you going to share your screen? Yes. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Cool. Yeah, because I want to, I want to see this journey, and we, we might, we might not have to. We'll probably cut this part out specifically. Uh, I don't know why we would. We should keep it. The technical difficulties. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> okay. Zach doesn't, Zach doesn't care. He probably likes the organic nature of this. 
so when you so it's it's uh it's interesting like um did you leave uh to go to cairo was your did your mom decide to go more for the economic opportunity in cairo being better or was there something in sudan that you were trying to uh like like did you have a refugee status or anything like that i mean okay so i like yeah i was i was i was really young at that time so i didn't really understand have like have an, an understanding of why we were moving, but I think for my mom, like it was for her, it was more of uh, you know just being able to, I don't know, find a better opportunity somewhere else because yeah, there was like a lot of issues going on in Khartoum, like especially if you're South Sudanese. I mean, if you're from the south, you're not really you're not really being treated fairly because you know because of the war that was going on. Yeah. Even adding up, there was a war going on, so there was like there was like a lot of tensions. So majority of the people who used to live in the south ended up living, moving to Khartoum, seeking opportunities and uh, education. But that really wasn't the case because they ended up even being uh, what do you call uh, internally displaced in their own country. You know, mm. so yeah, so there are like stories of people even living in camps and places and houses made out of uh, cardboards like there were conditions like that you know so some of the few lucky ones were and and can you tell us a little bit about yeah i I just want to hear a little bit about like the the nature of the war like um why it was going on how it started i think over here in america we we've we heard about darfur a lot but we didn't understand very much about it yeah so there were actually two Stuff. There were actually two Sudanese civil war, and the first one started from around the time of independent 1956 all the way to early 70s when they when a, a peace agreement was signed, and when that peace agreement was signed, it was uh, it gave the South some sort of like a semi-autonomous uh, status. Like things were like we had like a parliament built, there was a government, and all that was happening. Like all like yeah, some good things were happening. Like that. A couple of peaceful years, and then when yeah, around the 1980s, another war started, and that was because of uh, what's his name? His uh, president Nimeri at the time decided to oops, decided to impose uh, some Sharia laws as a result of uh, yeah, like Sudan was going through some economic hardships, so they had to like go to countries in the Middle East, like as, if I'm not mistaken, it was Saudi Arabia. And, yeah, they got some loans from Saudi Arabia, but then part of the conditions for giving the loans was uh, imposing Sharia laws in part of the South. So when the people in the South heard that, when the government in the South heard that about this, these conditions, they decided to revolt and uh, yeah, started like uh, a military revolution against the government in Sudan. And that was the start of the second Sudanese uh Civil War, and that started from the early 1980s. But yeah, you can all you can check that because I don't remember the timeline exactly. But yeah, it was around the 1980s, and then also like around the 1980s, things also got worse because Omar Bashir came into power as well through uh, a military coup. So he made things even worse by trying to end the armed conflict in the south using his military power. So that just made things even worse. There was a lot of people who were getting killed. Like it was, it was just uh, a humanitarian crisis and yeah, things just weren't 
to Guerrero. That led to a lot of South Sudanese spreading, like going to places like Ethiopia, Uganda, Kenya, and just becoming refugees. And that resulted into, yeah, the Lost Boys and you know, mm. just, yeah. So it was, yeah, and then some also went into, once I went, well, some went to Khartoum, and then from there they were able to find their ways to uh, Cairo, Egypt. So to tie this into your story, did your uh, was was your uh, mom living in Khartoum with you two because of that displacement? Yeah, yeah, part of it, yeah, like like, like the yeah, like most of it was as a result of that because her mom had to literally put her on a plane to go to Khartoum and stay with her aunt. But then, yeah, she, she just things didn't work out that well. So she ended up having to, you know, live on her own and just, you know, just try to find, yeah, just mm. find ways to survive. And then luckily my aunt was able to go to Egypt. And then as a result of that, we were able to, she was able to help my mom to get a ticket and come to Egypt. Awesome. So that journey, uh, we're looking at a map right now on Google Maps, and it, and it looks like mm-hmm. right, on the, right on the line where South Sudan. Can you see it, by the way? Yeah, yeah I can see it. <clears throat> so, right, first of all, right on the line where South Sudan meets Sudan, it seems like that's the tree line for the uh, a lot of like the forest and rainforest. So it's like South Sudan mm-hmm. seems more forested, and then North Sudan seems more like a desert. Yeah, yeah. And the funny thing is, there's literally a swamp area like there's like a long swampy area that divides the two countries so yeah even like by nature like even nature is just trying to make sure that okay (laughs) it's really showing us that we are two different countries and not one so yeah it's just it's it's just yeah like it's just crazy when i think about it so your so your journey from khartoum all the way up to i mean let's can we zoom in on uh, Khartoum a little bit? You took a train from Khartoum all the way up Sudan, uh, and it was just like all desert. You said. Mhm. Mhm. So what was yeah. that like? It was. I remember having to, like, my mom had to like, made me and my sister like sleep on the on the ground, and then it's just it was just it was just hard to sleep because the train was just shaking, and then. Later on, like we were told that, oh, it was like an issue and the train itself almost, you know, like came off the railway. It was just, yeah, it was just like wow. a scary experience. Yeah. So we literally oh. had to like, yeah, you, you take the train from there all the way to Port Sudan. And then, yeah, you get on a boat and then you get into uh, Egypt. Okay, so Port Sudan's on the Red Sea, and then you go yeah. up the Red Sea, and then mm-hmm. jump into Egypt, and there's uh, Aswan right there, uh, yeah. which is right right near the the Aswan Dam, where mm-hmm. uh, it was a King Nasser dammed up the Nile to create that fake lake. Yeah, yeah, there's a further Nasser, yeah. Okay, and then how did you get from Aswan all the way up the Nile to Cairo? I okay, so I think we. I think we took a train, yeah. So we took a train from there all the way to Cairo because I remember getting, I remember getting dropped off at uh, at a train station in Cairo and then getting on a metro, which was, yeah, like for me it was really exciting at that time. It was just three years old, 
So yeah, so I remember like, using a train, then getting on a getting on the metro, and then taking a taxi, and then being dropped off at my auntie's uh, house. Dang! Look at yeah. look at that. There it is, El Cajera. Mm-hmm. Um. <clears throat> so you were kind of, I mean. I, th- I, I want to say it seems like you were young enough that it was it was it still a big shock to your life the, the change from Khartoum to Cairo, or is Cairo kind of most of what you remember? Uh, okay, I mean I I remember a lot of okay I remember like I remember arriving and then at that time like so the good thing is there was like a lot of uh, Sudanese like the like we had like a really big family and there was like a lot of. Uh, it was like the Sudanese community was really big. So I remember, yeah, I remember like a lot of events, especially because we arrived around November. So like literally around towards the end of November is when we arrived to Cairo. And I remember like, yeah, it was almost Christmas time. And I, was, I remember all these events. I remember going to church. I remember meeting family members who, yeah, shared the same uh, family name as mine. And yeah, it's like people who later on ended up being resettled to different uh, countries. So I, I remember that. I just, I remember things were, were also a bit nicer. I don't know, maybe just because I remember that because I was just young and I didn't really know what's happening. But yeah, I remember things were a little bit better. Around so there was time. like, there's a cool community of uh, South Sudanese. A lot of them, it sounds like mm-hmm. with your last name, were they like in your tribe too? Is that, Fair to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They are they're mostly from my tribe. Yeah, mostly from my. And does tribe. your tribe have a name? Yeah, it's called Muru. Okay, and uh, what what language do they speak? Uh, so the language they speak is also called Muru. Okay, and M O R U. M O R U, and then uh, why am I thinking of Dinka too? Uh, okay, because Dinkas are the like okay they're the biggest tribe in South Sudan so most of the time whenever whenever someone meets someone from South Sudan they assume that they are from Dinka or Nuer okay yeah yeah and so Moru is uh one of the smaller tribes yeah like like we're probably the 10th biggest tribe okay and but then they had a they had a strong community in Cairo it sounds like so tell us yeah. a little bit about um Wait, like being a kid in Cairo, uh, like what was that like? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was, I feel like in the, in like the first couple of years, it was, it was, you know, it wasn't really, it was okay because I just didn't know what was happening. Because I, as I grew older, because I remember we ended up having to move from my aunt's place to where I actually ended up living for close to 12 years. Literally, so I lived. So I ended up moving from Arab Mahdi to a neighborhood called Hadaik al Mahdi, and that's where like the majority of all the South Sudanese refugees live. And like even until to, to this day, majority of them still live there. Hadaik al Mahdi. Yeah, Hadaik al Mahdi. And that's where the uh, learning center is, are right? Yeah, that was. Yeah, that's where Hope was, and then you just have to take like. Transport and then you get to Madi Jidida's where uh, was it called Far Africa was at some point and then but yeah but before that it was it was close to 
Arab Mahdi. So it was, yeah, it was very, it was very close by. So I remember, yeah, I remember having to, you know, like in the first couple of years, I wasn't really, I wasn't able to go to school, me and my sister. So what my mom would do, she was like, she would, uh, she would lock me and my sister inside the house and then she'd go to work. And yeah, she would probably just have to watch TV or stay in the balcony. So that's like one of the things that we do a lot of, just be watching like what's happening in the street. And yeah, like it wasn't, it wasn't easy because in the beginning when like when my mom, when we first moved into Egypt, we didn't have our uh, UNHCR card. So before you can be officially a refugee and get some like protection from being deported by the police, you need to register with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees first. So in the first like three years, we didn't have that yet because uh, yeah, my mom just hasn't re- uh, hasn't been registered and all that stuff. So yeah, like we're like we had to live in a little bit of uh, like fear and yeah, sometimes like I think there, I remember there was a time when my dad went to my dad went to work and then I was it was me and my mom and my sister like we're left in the house and at that time there were, the, like the police were rounding up uh, Sudanese and Africans who yeah they're just like they had like they had like a very interesting name for it. It like Operation Rounding Blacks or something some like yeah a name of that sort so basically what they would do is like they would go to every single house and then they would knock for, I don't know, for as long as they can and just, you know, trying to make you just go and open the door. So I remember, I remember like, yeah, the police came and then they were knocking on our door. They would ring the bell and then we just knew that, okay, we shouldn't like just, you know, just don't make any noise. That's what my mom was telling me at that time. Don't make any noise. Stay quiet. So yeah, so they're knocking on the door for like, I don't know, close to 15 minutes and then they went on to our neighbor's door, knocked, the neighbor opened, and they took everyone in the house, even the, the two kids, and they ended up spending close to three days in prison, and after that, they were released. So, yeah, it, was, it wasn't, it was just, it was a lot of, like in the first couple of years, it was just a lot of fear that, you know, you might get arrested, and if you get arrested, then that's it, you'll be put on a train back to Sudan, and then, at that time, for the Sudanese government, whenever they received anyone coming from Egypt, especially like South Sudanese, they assumed that they were part of the rebel groups fighting in the South. So most of the time, you just be taken into jail, and then they'll be able to just spend time in jail, and then they'll release you, and then you just become, again, another internally displaced person. So, yeah, like it was just, it was just like that element of fear that, we go in the street, like you just might just want to go and get bread or fruits and then, you know, the police would just arrest you. And luckily, my dad was able to uh, get me and my mom and sister added to his uh, UNHCR file, like, because he had a case with them. So before you can be resettled, yeah, like, as I mentioned before, you have to be registered the ones who get registered, they open a case for you, and then they give you that UNHCR uh, card, which you can use for uh, to get to get a residency permit so that if the police ever find you in the street, they won't just arrest you and take you and put you in jail. So it's 
uh, sort of like a protection against mm. being uh, deported. So, so that first year, um, there were those first couple of years where there was a lot of fear, uh, your mom was going out and working to try to provide for, for you and your sister. Uh, yeah. What work was she doing? And was she worried about, I mean, what if the police came to her where she was working and just decided to ask her there? Yeah, I mean, okay, so at that time, like for most of the South Sudanese refugees who were in Egypt, like you, you weren't allowed to work. Like the only sort of job that you can find is to either be a janitor or a maid or if you can just, you know, find work with those uh, small shops in Egypt like, or, or a supermarket if you're lucky. So she, she, yeah, she got a job as a, as a, as a maid with an Egyptian family. And yeah, that's like, that's, used to be like her work for yeah for like the time that we are living in Japan luckily she ended up working with a really nice family who were nice to her and you know allowing her to be able to like come home early so that she can uh, take care of me and my sister yeah and then my dad was also trying to uh, find like work a little bit because at, at that same time he was also studying so it was hard for him to find a job as well but yeah, so but did your dad come up with you? Uh, I, I remember your dad is a uh, professor, right? Um, so did yeah. he come up? Did he come up with you at first uh, when you went from Khartoum to Cairo, or did he stay there? Okay. Okay. So okay, I think I have to clarify this. So yeah, so like when I was born in Sudan, I like my okay before I was born, my dad was my biological father was gone like a long time ago a long time ago before I was born, so I didn't really get to know him. So I don't know who my biological father is, but yeah, when we when we came to Egypt, my mom met my uh, stepfather, who I know called my uh, my dad. Yeah, and okay. yeah, she met him when he was yeah, she met him when he was uh, when he was studying at the American University in Cairo. Because before that, he was he studied in the University of Juba, and then he was able to get a scholarship to continue his uh, studies in the American University in Cairo. And then he, was also, he, like, he used to also get opportunities to go to the UK and uh, attend classes with the, I think there was like, there's a refugee, there's a refugees, there's a center for refugee studies in the uh, University of Oxford. So he would go there every once in a while to spend some time taking classes and uh, yeah, just, yeah, attend classes mostly. Wow. Uh, and is he yeah. still, is he still doing that? Is he still a professor? Yeah. I mean, he's, he's currently, uh, he's currently a professor in the University of Cuba. So he teaches the graduate students there. He teaches them. So he ended up, he even ended up doing his, uh, his PhD at, uh, the University of Oxford in, uh, peace and development studies. Wow. Oh, that's yeah, very cool. So, yeah. So now he, he teaches in uh, Juba. Okay. Um, yeah. So you said that, you know, you weren't allowed to work or South Sudanese people weren't allowed to work. Uh, what about school? Like for, for you and your sister, uh, when it came time to start going to school, what was that like? Yeah. So, yeah, I remember the first, the first school or like education center that I attended was called San Joseph. And yeah, I remember my mom signing up, signing us up to go to our school. Yeah, like she was really excited because before that she was 
spending a lot of time trying to teach me and my sister, even like to write, you know, from one to 100 and then learn all the A, B, C, Ds to Z. Yeah, she's just having a hard time doing that because she, yeah, like, unfortunately, like, for, like she wasn't fortunate enough to be able to uh, go to school. But despite that, she, like, she wanted to make sure that we have access to education. So she signed up, she signed us up to this school called San Joseph. And it was, it was around 20 minutes by, okay, or, or less 10 minutes away from my house by, uh, by Michael bus. So yeah, I remember going there for, was it a month or two months? So yeah, it was a very small, it was a very small school. It was literally uh, a five bedroom apartment where we had, there were four classes and then there was a kitchen and there was a room for, uh, for the teachers. And then we had like a small, a small like area where we go out for, uh, for lunch, like during lunch breaks. So anyway, so given that the school was literally on the ground floor and it was a residential building, we had the neighbor, uh, the people living in the, in the building where was, were constantly complaining about noises and all that stuff and telling us, Oh, this place is not supposed to be a school. So anyway, so after two months, the school was shut down. And yeah, like we're just left without school and we had to spend close to two years at home because there's no other, there's no other like, you know, uh, school available. Like they had do, the only one that was. Do you know why they had the school in the, in the, first of all, in an apartment, in a residential building, uh, why, why they couldn't have it in like a, a regular school building? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like one, like the the main thing is we there wouldn't be they wouldn't have been allowed to have access to like a bigger space because of uh, because of the different laws that were in Egypt around that time and all the permits and all the documents that are required in order for you to register a school. So these schools were actually not even legal. They were, you know, they were just meant to. They're, they're, they're known as centers. So I think at that time, the Egyptian government didn't have issues with it being a center, like an educational center, but then they had issues with it being called a school. So the main problem is we're not, we're okay with it being called a, an educational center, but we're not okay with it being called a school. And even for a refugee student trying to get into an Egyptian school, that itself was impossible, given that you still have to go to your the Sudanese embassy asking for, you know, documents. And, you know, by the virtue of you being a refugee, you actually give up on your right as a Sudanese citizen. So you can't even, you, we couldn't go to the embassy and ask for documents because, you know, by going to the UNHCR, we are telling them that our country is not, is no longer safe for us. So yeah, we weren't allowed to go to the embassy at all. So that was, Another problem that we had to face. Why would why would the government not want like refugees to be able to set up their own schools and teach their own kids? Um, at that time, I I honestly didn't I honestly don't know why, but I like from my understanding now that I, I rather that it has to do with uh, Egypt's relationship with Sudan because by Allowing by allowing uh, 
refugees to set up schools in Egypt. It kind of, uh, at the time, it kind of messes up Egypt's relationship with Sudan because for Sudan, they're saying that, no, we don't have any issues. Those people are not refugees, but they're just, they're not really refugees. They're just people who are, who have rebelled against the government. So you actually shouldn't be giving them space to do anything. So I think, I think that was the argument against giving refugees, uh, space to set up schools. Wow. Um, okay. We, do you want to pause Paul and ask some map questions or something? Sure. I mean, who doesn't enjoy map questions? Yeah. So, uh, Zach, can you, uh, help me figure out where you lived the first few years you were in Cairo? Okay. Uh, so I think, okay, so this is, yeah, I think you might have to zoom out. Um, should we look up uh, Mahdi? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you should look up Mahdi. Spell so, Mahdi? M-A-A-D-I. Yep. And then right. Mahdi al-Hayek should be right next to it. I think, yeah, I think you should write Mahdi and then you should write, write uh, road 9B. Road nine. Yeah. Nine B? Yeah. That should. Uh, Why is it not sure? Yeah, you can hit any one of those that say road nine, Mahdi, Egypt. <clears throat> yeah, this should be good. There's road nine. There's the I, KFC. I, <laughs> I okay, see the zoom, KFC. Zoom out a little okay. bit. Okay, cool. So I think from here I can. And then I think if you go up and to the right. Yeah. Okay, right down there on the, oh wait, at the bottom of the screen, just to the right a little bit is Cairo American College. That's where I went to high school. Okay, right there. Yep. Can you, can um, you, can you see my cursor? Yeah, yeah, I can. Um, CAC. So I think Maria Hayek is to the north, I want to say. Yeah, yeah, because this is, yeah, I think you have to go up. Um, and then maybe to the right a little bit. Cause, yeah, cause I, 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 sorry, go ahead. Because like, I know this area, so yeah, or maybe towards the left. To the bit. left. Yeah. There's Hadaik El Mahdi, uh, it looks like a grocery yep. store. Yeah. Wow. So it's. <laughs> Do you mean zoom out? Uh, yeah, I think yeah, I think you probably have to zoom out. There's the metro for Hadaik Mhm. Mm yep, that's it. Oh, MGM. Yep, yep. Found it. Yeah, so that's where it is. So yeah, so my house was literally five minutes from the metro station. Because I remember just being able to leave my house and then I'll walk all the way to the metro station. You want to so go this, to church or... The metro station, uh, Hadaik El Mahdi Metro on the top left? Yeah, yeah. Ah. So you were yeah. right near there. Mm -hmm. You weren't far from the river. Yeah, a little bit. I don't know, I feel like the map makes it look like... The map makes it look a little bit like too... 
a lot closer I, yeah. than it really is. Yeah. Yeah. But I remember being able to just walk there. So I remember doing that a lot sometimes. Well, there, this says number 9B. Yep. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah. So near, yeah, there was like, there's even a, there's like a mosque nearby. Yeah. I, I remember that area very well. That's and then on the other side, on the other side was where my high school was, where Hope was. Okay. Still is. Still there. Do you think that Google Maps would have African Hope? Nah. I don't think so. But yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, this is the, this is the area. I know it. So, okay. So tell us about uh, African Hope and uh, Found Africa Learning Centers. Yeah. So like going back to the education story, like, yeah. So after two years of being home, we, yeah, we just heard that, okay, there's a new school that is opening up. It's the same school. So San Joseph, but then this time it's going to be a little bit further it's going to be in a neighborhood called Madi uh, Jidida. Uh, so it's New Madi. So, yeah, I remember, I remember how, like, yeah, excited my mom was about, like, finally, you know, being able to, like, get us back to school again. So, yeah, I remember starting my schooling. It was, like, grade one like, there. And it was, yeah, it was still the same scenario uh, a ground floor apartment, and then the rest of the building is uh, residential. So yeah, so I remember those. Yeah, it was like six, six, uh, six rooms, and then we had grade one all the way to grade six, and then I think at some point we also had uh, we had a room for kindergarten as well. And yeah, like everything was in Arab. These yeah. were these rooms were like the size of a room. Like how big were these rooms roughly? And then how many kids were in each hmm. one? I mean, the rooms were the rooms were really. I think the, the rooms were really tiny. Then the good thing is, was like you, like the school tried as much as they can to fit as many students as they can. And I remember there were times when there would be like thirty or forty of us in that tiny space. <sighs> and yeah, like it was just. It was, it was, yeah, it was really hard. Like, and there would be like three or four students sitting together in one long bench that has, that was only meant for two or three people. Sometimes you have to push it all day. It's like five students to sit there. Yeah. And then that's how, that's how and, we used to uh, learn. Were the teachers and the principal, like the administrative parts of these schools, were they just regular, uh, like Sudanese people also, they just wanted to provide education? So... Yeah, during my time, it was mostly it was mostly South the Sudanese refugees who have come earlier in the 1980s seeking education in Egypt. So majority of them were actually college educated uh, people who, you know, like they just they came to Egypt seeking education, got the education, but then they weren't able to go back to Sudan, so they end up staying in Egypt. So yeah, instead of not doing anything or just finding jobs and fields that, that uh, are not related to what they've learned, they've decided to, okay, how about opening up the school and trying to help those uh, young Sudanese who don't have access to any means of education. So it was, it was really, it was really helpful having them there. So you like, they have, uh, some of them were really educated. And I think 
to some extent, like I, I feel like my my best uh, my best like primary school education was in those uh, couple of years because they were really dedicated towards uh, ensuring that I and other people like me have access to a good education so that even if we end up getting resettled to another country, we won't really struggle academically. So that was really helpful. I remember, like I still this day, I remember how I wasn't really able to read, especially in my first year. Yeah, and like I struggled a lot, but then there was this one teacher who was studying law that, that during that time. Yeah, and he would come to my house and help me, who tutored me on how to read and all this stuff, and even do math with them. And yeah, it was it was really it was really helpful. And like until to this day, I'm like I'm grateful that I had that opportunity, and even being able to just. Uh, you know, learn like in a language that is not even mine at all. Cause everything was in Arabic. And to be honest with you, the only Arabic that I knew at the time was the Arabic that was spoken in my house, which was Sudanese Arabic. And the one that I used to get around in Egypt, which is Egyptian Arabic. But then for me to be able to write or read, that was, like, that was still impossible. But then through the help of those teachers, I got better at reading and writing. And then, also, the good thing is, at the time, we had we had access to the Egyptian uh, curriculum. So those schools were able to convince the Egyptian government to uh, provide us with books from the Egyptian curriculum. So that's what we that's what that's what we were taught using. Like so had, most of the language. language that you used was uh, Arabic that that you learned, okay. um, and that was like Fusha, like modern standard mm-hmm. Arabic. Uh, yeah. Did you also was there, was there also uh, English being taught? Yeah, there was English. Yeah, there was English. There was English being taught, but then it was just it wasn't it was just English for the sake of saying that okay, you're learning English and it's part of the curriculum. But it wasn't really the type of English that I later on had the opportunity to learn. Because you know? I remember how like it took me a long time to even be able to read and speak English and I had to like move to a different school and start everything in English. But yeah. Yes. So, so at this point you, you spoke Moru, you spoke uh, Sudanese Arabic, you spoke Egyptian Arabic and those are different. And then you also were now learning to read, write and speak uh, modern standard Arabic, Fusha. So, you know, mm-hmm. three dialects of one language and then Moru. Am I missing, were there any other languages that you speak? No, but like with the Maru, like with the Maru dialect, I can't really say that I know how to speak it because my mom didn't really like when we moved when we when we moved to Egypt, she wasn't really speaking to us in Maru because most of the time she's just tired coming back from work. So yeah, so I've, I've literally lost the the chance to be able to learn my native or my like my tribe language like dialect. So that is gone. So I only know how to speak Arabic and English at that point. Yeah. Okay. But it's like, it's Arabic, but it's, you have to speak like different dialects of it based mm-hmm. on where mm-hmm. you are. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that's one of the crazy things about the language in general is like Arabic in the Gulf States versus Arabic in the Levantine region versus mm-hmm. Egyptian mm-hmm. versus Moroccan. Like there's, they're all so different. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
So let's talk a little bit about how your your path crossed with mine. Um, and that started with, I think, you meeting uh, Mama Lance, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if there's any... I don't know how to describe it, but, you know, I just, like, I always remember those moments and, yeah, like, it brings tears of joy to my eyes because I'm just, uh, yeah, because I remember how it was, it was a found, it was a found Africa. And, yeah, I remember how I was just, I was in fifth, or, I, was, I think, yeah, I was in fifth grade. That's when, like, when I shifted to a new school because my mom was like, okay, you have learned enough Arabic time for you to shift to school where they teach in English. So yeah, so by the time I moved to Fine Africa, I've been there for close to three years. Yeah, and it was around 2009, and that's when you're, yeah, I think late to the, like, towards the end of 2009 is when your mom uh, started coming to our school. Then she would teach, uh, you should teach the sixth graders or the seventh graders. Anyway, so, but yeah, and then she'd bring us books to read. And then someone should like take us to uh, CAC to go and read there as well. So yeah, like at that time, like I wasn't really a book type of person. Like I wouldn't read books at all. Like the only thing I would focus on is my schoolwork, just getting those grades and that's about it. And yeah, like I didn't really know like what's like where my future was heading or, you know, cause at that time there was no, like nothing was going forward. Like even with the resettlement uh, issue, like we weren't really, yeah, like not, like I didn't know exactly what was happening, even though we were told, okay, that you'll be resettled to go to this country. And yeah, so I'm going to bring this up, but yeah. So at that time, I think before that, like a couple of years before that, we were told that we'll be resettled to the United States, and that's where like we would end up going to. But then, I guess that was a plan for us to end up going there. But then my dad had an issue with that because he, at that time, he was studying, he was doing his master's, and also he was also like has already secured uh, a scholarship to do his PhD. So the problem with us going to the States was that that meant that he would end up losing his scholarship. So that kind of ended up uh, stalling the resettlement process for us. And we just ended up living in Egypt for, yeah, like a couple more years. So anyway, going back to Fine Africa again. So yeah, like I just didn't know what I was going to do for schooling. And yeah, I think it was, it was towards the, yeah, it was in 2000. Okay, wait, yeah. Let me just think, just trying to remember. So yeah, around 2000 and, I think it was around, yeah, around 2010 when I was, you know, I'm getting the dates wrong. But anyway, anyway. Well, we, we, lived in, we lived in Cairo from 2008 to 2012, or 2013. I left in 2012. Yeah, okay. Okay, I think I remember. Yeah, so... Yeah, so I passed my fifth grade. Okay, was it fifth or sixth grade? I'm, I'm not sure. I remember. So anyway, so at that time I had a teacher. His name is Yasin. And then Yasin reached out to me and told me, like, yo, Zach, why don't, you know, um, the eighth grade examination is going to happen in uh, 
March of 2010, why don't you just skip seventh grade and then you just go straight to eighth grade and then you, because, you know, I think you can pass this exam and then you'll be able to just, I don't know, because spending a year is, is going to be like a waste of your time. And yeah, I was very anxious about that, but then, yeah, you suddenly like do it. And yeah, so which was, it was a very crucial exam because in order for you to go to high school, you had to sit for the Sudanese basic uh, certificate examination. It's basically like going from having to do an exam to go from middle school to high school. Yeah, so it was very, it was very crucial. So I decided to, yeah, take a gamble and go ahead and just join the eighth grade. And yeah, at that time is when I, uh, yeah, I got to meet your mom and then she was also teaching, she was teaching my class uh, food and nutrition. And there, were, there was 10 of us all uh, studying and learning, like just studying to pass that exam. And yeah, so I ended up being one of, uh, okay, I ended up being the only one who passed in my class of uh, 10 people. So that was, uh, was like a really, was a big thing for me. So I was like, wow, so I can actually, I can do this. And yeah, and then or, around that time is also when, yeah, Mrs. Lance was uh, talking to me about, yeah, maybe like being able to help me uh, enroll in uh, correspondence or do like online high schooling, high school while also going to the other Sudanese uh, refugee center called uh, Africa Hope. So yeah, so it was, it was, Tia said, if you pass, then yeah, I'll be able to help you enroll you in this uh, program so that you'll also be able to, you know, have not just one high school degree, but two. And yeah, so I passed. And yeah, I remember, I remember when I passed, she, she like it was, I think it was towards the, towards May of 2010 when I ended up, when she took me to CAC and then she was like, okay, I'm going to enroll you in the Boy Scouts. And to be honest, I didn't know what the Boy Scouts was all about. And yeah, it was just, it was a very confusing thing to me. I was like, whoa, okay, so what is she, like, what's the Boy Scouts? And yeah, I just found myself in the car with a bunch of other boys and then just being in the desert and then trying to ride a horse and clean a horse's uh, hooves and oh yeah yeah be, yeah all these things and going to a farm and getting beaten by mosquitoes so yeah, it was a very it was a very confusing but also exciting time for me yeah cause yeah i think was, i think she really saw something uh yeah i think she really saw something in you and mm-hmm. decided to invest um and yeah, part of that, I think, I don't know if you and I met w- when you first joined the Boy Scouts or you and I met just because my mom started to become more involved with your, uh, like with helping you. And so, but, but we eventually did meet and um, Boy Scouts was awesome, wasn't it? Do you, do you remember any, uh, any of the stories? I remember one we were, um, so our camping trips would always be like out in the desert. You know, we'd mm-hmm. drive out from Cairo and it would, it would just be, dunes as far as you could see and uh there'd be no clouds in the sky and (laughs) once it it could also get really windy sometimes um and it really hurt because the sand when it's really windy would sting you when it hits you uh and so once we were all setting up tents and uh like 
usually when you set up a tent, you stake it to the ground. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But but there's nothing to really stake it to because it's just sand. And so these these two kids, like I don't know, I don't remember who it was, but they tried to they set up their tent, and as soon as they set it up, it started catching air like a parachute and just started like flying across the desert. And then they started running after it, and then a couple other people started running after it. And for a minute, it looked like it was just gone. Like it looked like it would, they'd never catch it because uh, the wind was so strong. But it finally slowed down enough yeah. and they caught up. And a- every time after that, we learned that you always have to throw a bag inside your tent before, mm-hmm, you, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. before you make it 3D. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that was around, I think, I think that was in Ensokna. We went to Ensokna because we're next to the beach. Okay, maybe, yeah. So I think it was very windy on that day. You know, we just had to like, I'm not sure if it was Yusuf and the other kids or some of the new Boy Scouts, but yeah, but like it was, it was, it was, it was like it was, it was fun. Like it was a lot of fun. And I remember if there's one thing that I always take from the Boy Scouts is that feeling of uh, belonging to something for the first time in my life. Because growing up, I was okay. I was okay. I'm Sudanese, but I'm also in this country that. Sometimes, like most of them, I just don't feel like I belong there at all. But then when I joined the Boy Scouts, and I remember the first time when I had to learn the words of uh, Pledge of Allegiance, and you know, even though I was an American, it kind of it, it felt nice to just belong somewhere, or you know, just find something that connects you to, you know, something. Yeah. Right, and all just feeling like you don't really connect to it. like don't belong anywhere. So yeah, it was, it was, it was really good feeling to have and just being able to, you know, just go to all these places. Like I never, I never imagined that, you know, like throughout living in Egypt, that I will, I don't know, go to places like the white desert or the black desert, even go to Sinai and all these places. Like for me, just has always been the places, my neighborhood, church, when that was about this, but, Boy Scouts and your family, like, just really help, you know, opening all these doors and opportunities for me. And, like, it's one of those things that I'm really grateful for to this day. Like, it wasn't for that. I, I don't know. Like, I wouldn't even be here today. I don't know. Like, I don't know where I would be. But it was, yeah, it was it was a very special time for me. You know? It was awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. And one uh, one thing we did, you you came with us to Philmont too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like Philmont's probably the most famous Boy Scout ranch uh, summer camp in the uh, in the whole country. And mm-hmm. uh, we went as a troop from Cairo one summer, um, and it was awesome. Yeah, I mean we had we had cake on top of uh, Baldy Mountain. Yeah, Mount Baldy. Yeah. Was it your birthday? Yeah, Mount Baldy. No, I think it was someone else's birthday, but I remember just having cake on top of that mountain. It was yeah, it was it was cool. Yeah, that it was, was cool. it's a it's a really storied place. So you but you joined um like you joined when you were was it like fourteen or fifteen? So you know it would have been really hard to so fifteen. So you only had three years uh, to mm-hmm. like work on your rank. What what you, did you end up being first class or star? I think I think I was. What's the one? Okay, what's the one before? I think I was, I was the first class. First class. Yeah. Yeah, tenderfoot, second class, first class. Yeah, I think I was. Yeah, yeah that's where I ended first class. 
Yeah. So it was, Paul, it was exciting. Um, I, Paul, Paul, do you want to jump in or ask anything? No, you, you got to go to Philmont in uh, New Mexico. Yeah. That is oh, yeah, amazing. New Mexico. Yeah. Not Arizona. For some reason I thought it was Arizona. Yeah, it's New Mexico. Yeah. That's a beautiful part of the country. Mm-hmm. It's an amazing part yeah. of the country. Yeah. Wow. It was really something else. It was really, it was cool. And we also had these, uh, you get like a, a group of uh, shirts for your troop and everyone else had like, you know, Houston, Texas or, uh, Denver, Colorado. And we had Cairo, Egypt, and mm-hmm. it just looked mm-hmm. badass. And everyone was like, dang, you guys are from Cairo. And we're like, yeah, what up? <laughs> so yeah, that was, it was, cool. that was fun. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. Uh, before we started recording, Zach was telling me he's been to more than 20 States in the U S I, and I think that's more than the average American probably. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if I like, yeah, if I calculated them correctly, but yeah, I think it should be around that. Cause we took, we, we did a road trip, right? Yeah. And we crossed a lot of States. Yeah. That was a fun time. That, uh, that one mm-hmm. summer we, we started up in the North in the Northeast and then we just went all the way down. Um, all the way down to North Carolina, at least maybe further. Uh, so that was cool. But mm-hmm. so you're, you're a very well-traveled guy. Um, let's like, what happened, uh, after, you know, you, you kind of said that you weren't sure what your future was. Um, and so how did, uh, is it ALA African leadership Academy? How did that end up on your radar and how did you end up getting to go there? Yeah, so the way it started is, uh, was in Cairo because we had a meeting. It was me, this is Lance, and, uh, um, gosh, uh, Brooke Comer, who was, uh, yeah, she still works at the university, American University in Cairo. So we had like a meeting with her and just discussing like the plans of, okay, so what am I, what am I going to do next? It was like, yeah, it was the summer of 2012. And yeah, we're just having this conversation. And then in the midst of that, she mentioned, she started by mentioning Cairo Covenant School. I mean, yeah, school first, which where I ended up going to in Cairo and graduated from in uh, 2014. And then she also mentioned the African Leadership Academy in uh, Johannesburg, South Africa. And yeah, like I would say at that time, I was very... I was very skeptical about having to go to South Africa because I just I've never I've never felt like it's a place that I would want to go to despite its interesting and rich history. So yeah, but I did. She ended up connecting me with uh, a South Sudanese student who was studying there at that time and had like a Skype call. And yeah, he was actually, he actually used to live in Egypt as well. So he's like, yeah, you can do it. You should apply. It's a very, you know, it's a, it's a great place to be because you'll be meeting all these um, students from all over Africa. You'll be, you know, learning all these interesting things. So I applied, but before applying, I ended up joining Cairo Covenant School in the, in the, in the winter of 2013. So yeah, that was a very, it was a very interesting experience to me as well. Cause it was also, it was my first time going to like uh, a proper 
school where I have a chance of getting a, a, a high school degree that is accredited and also, yeah, a curriculum that is also accredited. So, and then there's like teachers who were qualified and all that. So it was, it was a very, it was, fu- it was a, it was a fun time for me because I just, I never, I never thought I would end up going to school like that. So I did, I applied to LA for a time and I made it all the, they used to have like a two, they used to have like a two, uh, two rounds. So they, like you, the first round you apply, and then if you get into the next round, which is the finalist round where you get to the interview stage and you also write an entrance exam. So I ended up reaching that stage, did my interview, but then I wasn't admitted. So yeah, and like, I mean, I was, I felt a little bit, uh, I felt down by that, but I was like, okay, fine. I will, cause I was, I was 18 at that time and they allow you to apply. So you have to be between the ages of 15 to 19 during that time. But now it's between, you have to be between the ages of 15 to 18. So in my head, I was like, okay, I'll give this thing another shot next year. And it was also good because it gave me the chance to finish high school in uh, Cairo Covenant. So I was able to go back for the fall of 2013, go back to school, then do all my schoolwork, reapply to ALA again. And yeah, this time I got in and also managed to finish and graduate from high school. So yeah, so I ended up in the summer, in the fall of 2014, I ended up in Johannesburg, South Africa, in the African Leadership Academy, where I spent two years learning uh, African studies, uh, entrepreneurial leadership, uh, writing in rhetoric classes, even took math classes, I took uh, business classes, economics, and yeah, did a research course on uh, international relations. So it was a very, I would, I would say that South Africa was a very interesting and challenging time for me because like for the first time I was in a different environment where to some extent I just felt lost because I I got there and I was overwhelmed by the amount of uh, learning that I needed to do and the kind of people that I was with. It was a very competitive environment. So in my first year, I I struggled a lot to even thrive there because I just felt like, sometimes I just felt like I don't really belong there. And yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't fun at all. Like it wasn't what, the first year wasn't fun at all. So I was just, I was just trying as much as I can to keep up with, things, schoolwork and all the other things, like just getting adjusted to um, an environment like that where I didn't really know everyone and I was challenged in so many ways, like my beliefs, my values, you know, so I, yeah, it was just, it was just a very challenging time for me. But towards the second year, that's when I got the hang of things and I was able to 
yeah, understand who am I, what I stand for, and what are like my, you know, what do I think of, uh, what my beliefs are, what I think of certain issues and uh, certain challenges. So it was, yeah, it was, it was two years that changed a lot about who I think of myself as a person. So it was uh, a, it was a competitive environment and you had to do some catching up. Uh, mm-hmm. And to be, I mean, you were handed a pretty rough hand to start with in life. You know, your education was kind of put off for years. Um, did you find, uh, you know, even with all the competitiveness, did you find like a group of people or, or a place to belong, uh, you know, at ALA? Yeah, yeah. I and mean, it's like, this, I was saying, like, as I was saying, like my second year is when I was able to find my foot in yeah, I was able to, you know, uh, find, make friends, trips with people that I still talk to until now. So that was very, I feel like having friends and people that, you know, you can rely on helped a lot in my second year and even made it a lot easier, you know, and, um, uh, did, yeah, like, uh, did you have any adventures in Johannesburg or South Africa? Um, not really i mean like my like our campus was like weren't really allowed to go out that much because of how the security situation is in transburg but yeah there were times when we had the chance to go out and we watched the i remember going to the to the stadium the fmb stadium to watch a derby so that was like that was a that was a fun thing to do but going on hiking trips sometimes What's so, a like what's a, a derby? Like a derby for what? Uh, football derby, like the the two biggest teams in South Africa. It's called the Soweto Derby. Uh, like football, like soccer. Yeah, soccer. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. So, yeah. So I remember, I remember watching, going there to watch it, and it was it was a packed stadium. There were like vuvuzelas everywhere. There was a lot of noise, and yeah, that was, was like. Oh, it's fun. And then I remember also attending, being part of the, an MUN conference that took place in my school. It was called the Model African Union uh, Conference that took place in my school. And I was able to participate in that. It was a, it was a good learning experience for me as well. And yeah, also being uh, a student ambassador, like being able to like, meeting guests and like all these different people who come to LA and I give them a tour of the campus. Uh, they ask me questions and I just get to interact with them. So that was, uh, that was fun as well because it gave me the chance to get over my fear of uh, public speaking and speaking in front of uh, a big group of people. Yeah, and I also ended up doing a, a My Story where I stood up in, the, in, a, in an auditorium full of close to 400 people and tell them my story, where I came from, all that stuff. So that was, that was also fun to just be able to share that with people. And yeah, I also played Frisbee while I was there. So that was a fun thing to do. It was nice. like the only sport that I played there. <sighs> well, 400 is uh, probably a little bit more than our podcast will reach, but you know, maybe someday it'll be bigger. Amen. You're you're downplaying the podcast, Daniel. 
That's true. Yeah. We're huge, dude. You're about to be famous, Zach. <laughs> Maybe internationally famous. Right. Hey, so when you, when you finished at uh, ALA, was that considered uh, a college degree of any sort? No, it was, it was sort of a, a pre-college kind of degree because I ended up with a, with a diploma in African studies and entrepreneurial uh, leadership. Okay, Plus, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, after ALA, did you stay in Johannesburg or did, did you go to Uganda? Uh, okay, so what happened was after, after finishing ALA, because, you know, I, I, I was also applying to all these colleges, but then I wasn't able to get into any of them. So I decided to take a gap year. And, yeah, my plan was to go to South Sudan and kind of work there, probably teach or just be engaged with the community there. But, unfortunately, when I went there, I mean, luckily, sorry, like I was, I we had this uni- reunion for all the LA alumni in uh, Kampala. So, yeah, I, I ended up going to the reunion in Kampala, Uganda. And then while I was there, because like, I, left, I left in the morning, and then at night, an, an armed conflict started in South Sudan. So I ended up getting stuck in Uganda for, yeah, up to a year. And then my family, my mom and my sisters had to join me there later on as a result of the conflict that was going on in South Sudan. And that's how I ended up spending a whole year in Uganda with my family, just trying to help them uh, settle in into Kampala. So you were on your way to South Sudan, uh, but you, you stopped in Kampala just for that reunion? No, I, so I wasn't, I, I, I landed in South Sudan. I was there for two weeks. And then I was told, I signed up for this reunion. So I was like, oh, cool. You know, it will be, be a nice opportunity to connect with other alumni and see what they're doing. And, you know, maybe I can be part of that. So, yeah, it was just supposed to be like, a three-day thing, and then I come back to South Sudan and try to figure out what I want to do. But it ended up being a whole year in Kampala, wow. Uganda. And just yeah. the, go ahead, Daniel. In that three days, that's when an armed arm conflict started. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, <coughs> man, that's that's yeah. crazy timing. Yeah, I mean, could you imagine you're living in uh, Virginia in the states, and you're going to travel to North Carolina for a three-day weekend, and you get stuck in North Carolina for a year? <laughs> it seems crazy. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. It's just one of those like yeah. I, I I just couldn't I couldn't believe it. So, but yeah. I mean, I I ended up staying there. My family joined me, and then for a year, that's when I decided. Okay, since I wasn't really doing much because other than just like being there with my family, I started looking for schools again and. One of the schools that came up was the African Leadership University. So at that time, they only had one campus. One was in Mauritius. And yeah, so I was looking up, and then one of my teachers from LA told me, like, oh, you should apply to the African Leadership University because you'll be opening a new campus in Kigali, Rwanda, which is literally next door to Uganda. And it was... 
yeah, it was one of those moments I was like, wow, Rwanda, you know, like I was shocked and I was a surprise. It was like, of all places, Rwanda, because, you know, I'm just, when I think of Rwanda, I just remember watching movies and about what happened in yeah. 1995. Yeah, so I don't remember, I don't really remember a lot of, uh, I don't think of a lot of positivity. But I did end up, but I did apply after doing my research of what's happening in the country. And yeah, I got in in the summer of 2017. And it was, it was, it was, yeah, it was, it was a, it was a good decision that I made because it brought me into an Africa, okay, an African country where things actually work, where there's like systems that are put in place to ensure that uh, you know there's accountability, that there's transport, the roads are clean, and there's internet, there's all the things that you know are there to make sure that you. Like yeah, there basically there's basically a government that provides services to people, and I was yeah that was really exciting to me. It was like you know finally there's an example of an African country where things work, and I'm really I'm grateful that I made that decision to come here, and yeah, like I'm currently almost done with my degree in international business and trade and we'll be graduating in February of uh, February 11th 2021 so just a couple more months and I'll be an alumni yeah not not far away that's awesome mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. hey uh, Zach have you been to Mauritius lately no no do you, do you have friends in Mauritius yeah I do, I do. did you I have happen, a who, did you happen to mention this podcast to your friend in Mauritius uh no, but I would definitely I'd definitely do that. I mean, I have a lot of friends. We have, will... we we've been downloaded in Mauritius three or four times. Oh, really? Yes, oh. and it, I think I think you're the connection. Oh, yeah. I don't know who else it could be. Yeah, I didn't know where Mauritius was until I saw the download. Oh wow! It's out in the middle of the Indian Ocean, right off the east yeah. coast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, what is uh, so, so? You're in Rwanda, and that's where you're talking to us from, from uh, mm-hmm. African Leadership University in Kigali. Mm-hmm. Um, when you graduate, uh, what are you looking forward to doing in your in your future? Do you have any plans or ideas? Yeah. So, hmm. Well, I'm hoping to I'm hoping to go to grad school. So that's something that I'm currently working on, just trying to send out applications and all that stuff. So I'm hoping to pursue a master's degree in uh, international development and or international relations. But yeah, just trying to work on things that are related to governance and development and how to set up systems in place and policies to ensure that uh, the people, like normal, everyday citizens, can have access to services. So that's my, especially in the sector of education. Like, given that I am, given my history, and given that I've, like, one thing that I've always tried to have access to is uh, proper 
and quality education. That's something that I also want to see what it can be given to other people as well. And also something that I'm thinking, hopefully one day I'll be able to work in is uh, trying to help refugees in their, uh, ensuring that refugees are not seen as people who are a threat to like when, when they get, I don't know, like when they go to a host country, that they're actually seen as people who can contribute. So try to see if I can end up working with the UNHCR in creating creating programs where refugees are not just integrated economically, but where it can be like holistic, where you can have the economic and the social integration together so that things like what happens in like what current what's currently happens in Europe where refugees are just seen as oh they're coming here to take our jobs you know they're terrorists things like that and also just 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 try to try to just try to ensure that when again sorry I just lost my train of thoughts but just try to ensure that when try to ensure that when they when they have to escape their home country and go to another country, the country, the communities where they will be hosted in, see them as people and just be also be trained that, okay, these are people having like have campaigns for the host community. So they understand what those people have to go through, you know, seeking safety. Cause what, what tends to happen is like my situation in Egypt, I just, I feel like it could have done, it could have been, what could have been done better was the UNHCR being able to teach and teach the normal Egyptian citizen that, okay, this is what's happening in Sudan. These people are suffering as a result of X, Y, Z. So when they come in here, they're not after your jobs or after your, I don't know, schools or whatever. They're just here seeking safety. Because you know, when you do that, you allow people to have some sort of um, empathy and be more empathetic. But then when you just bring people over and without really being able to educate the host communities about what those people represent, you kind of create a big gap in understanding. You know? Yeah, so it's, it seems like a, a very a tall order, like a difficult job. Uh, but I, I think it's such an important one and an admirable, a really admirable thing to pursue, especially given your personal experience. I mean, and, and with regard to Egypt specifically, you know, in America, we've been having our, our reckoning with race uh, over this, over these past few months since the summer. Mm-hmm. Um, but in Egypt, like, you want to talk about like, you know, racism, that's very, very obvious and direct. Like it's, it's pretty, it's serious in Cairo. And, um, and that was really obvious through the different, how, how differently you were treated. It was both a refugee thing and a race thing. And so like trying to socialize the host community, meaning Cairo to, mm-hmm. to, to both, you know, humanize you as someone who is a refugee, but also someone who looks completely different and speaks a different language is, uh, it just seems very difficult. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's just that, like, I mean, someone has to, like someone has to do something about it. And, I guess like every time I think of 
what used to happen in Cairo, like not even used to happen, like until now, keeps on happening, is like how Egyptians view themselves as not Africans. But then when it comes to the African Cup of Nations, which is this big soccer tournament where teams from all over the like teams from the continent come in and play, that's when Egyptians consider themselves as African. And yeah, I always remember how for six years of my life, every single time the Egyptian national team wins a tournament, like when I go out in the street, I'll just be targeted and like, yeah, we've beaten you guys yesterday. And though, I mean, we're different people, like just because I'm black doesn't mean that I'm from Ghana or I'm from Ivory Coast or, you know, whatever team that you have defeated yesterday. It was one of those, it's just one thing that always frustrates me. And you know, but at the same time, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit, I'm more optimistic now, given that I now have friends here that I talk to, like Egyptian friends who I talk to about those issues and they do acknowledge that those things do happen and, you know, they're trying to do something about it. I mean, one of, one of my, like one of my classmates, like the person that I graduated with from CCS, so she's back in Egypt now and we, yeah, we, always have conversations about those things and how, you know, how she thinks that she should be doing more to, you know, make those issues known and even, you know, push people to actually talk about issues of racism in Egypt that they have to take place in Egypt. So yeah, I feel like with, when you, when you can have more conversations about it, those conversations can lead to action. Even if it's just a small, I don't know, like a small, sit down and then just, you know, tea and then and just talk about it, you know. Mm-hmm. Because the more you talk about it, uh, the higher the chances of people actually taking actions. Yeah, if, yeah. if no if no one does anything, uh, then all of those issues get worse. And so you have to try. And so I applaud you, Zach, for, for uh, having that ideal and that goal in mind. So let's say three or four years from now, you have a master's degree now. Uh, and you want to work for, and you have a job, let's say with UNHCR, where are you living? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. It's a good question. Uh, okay. This might sound very, this might sound like very diff- like crazy, but I think I would want to live in Sudan again. I can go to Sudan. I know just like for, the last, I don't know, five, six years, I've just always felt like that's a place where, since it's where my journey started, that's a place where I want to go back to and, you know, see what kind of uh, change that I can have there. Because, I don't know, it's, even though I've left that country when I was really young, I still feel like it has, like, a large a big part of me feels connected to Sudan than it is to South Sudan. And yeah, even though that might not go well with a lot of people in my family, but yeah, a big part of me feels connected to Sudan. I feel like there's something there, there's something calling me to go back there and yeah, work there even for like a couple more years and see what happens after that. But yeah, it's just something that I've had in my mind for a long period of time, but also South Sudan is also part of my plan. But 
later on. Like for now, for now, what I want to do is work in a place where I feel like where I, I think there's uh, where things are going in the right direction. And with Sudan, especially after the revolution that took place in 2019, I feel like there is hope, and then there, things are going in the right direction. Given that they're now setting up a government that is inclusive of everyone in the country, not just a government that is for the elites, but an inclusive government that is made up of people from all over the country. And then when you look at South Sudan, we still, we still have a long way to go. I think for me, part of the reason why I think I'm a bit hesitant about going back and work there too soon is the fact that I, I'm scared for my life that, okay, if I try to make changes, I might be targeted. So for now, I would just wait it out and work in a place where I feel like, okay, maybe whatever I'm, I'm trying to achieve or whatever positive change I'm trying to have will be, uh, you know, will be welcomed. Very cool. What do you consider your home country, Zach? South Sudan hmm. or Sudan? Um, okay, I would, I would say, I would say, okay. I honestly, I would say Sudan, but my my passport says, oh yeah, I would say Sudan. Okay. And, and how many people that consider themselves South Sudanese actually live in Khartoum today? Uh, a large number of South mm. Sudanese, I think probably close to, I don't know, 2 million people, maybe. Okay. Yeah. Hey, Daniel, should we ask our standard question? Uh, yes. Um, or whatever yeah, version you want to, you, you want to ask today. <laughs> okay. Uh, I do want to, I want to ask, uh, like really quick before that, the, you know, the graduate, like trying to go to grad school. Um, do you know where you'd want to go? Are you open to going really anywhere in the world? Um, okay. So, um, like at this moment, um, I'm torn between, Okay, well, I've, I've, just, I've recently just applied to uh, Middlebury Institute of International Studies in uh, Monterey in California. So, and then I'm still applying for like three more schools. One of them is uh, Geneva Institute. So, in Geneva. Would it help? so I, what I'm getting at is like, would it help if Paul and I kind of checked our network to see if there's anybody that, that you, that could talk to you that might, that, that might be involved in a program like that. Yeah, that'd, that'd, that'd be cool. Okay, cool. We'll, uh, we'll, we'll let everybody that listens to the podcast know and, uh, and maybe we can find somebody who knows somebody. Uh, but yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Yeah, absolutely, man. I think, you know, you should have a lot of people behind you right now, but our standard question, here we go. Um, would you rather? Wait, how old that, you now? That's why I asked the home country question too. By the way, like oh. I want to understand which military we're talking about. Oh, <laughs> okay. Are you? How old are you now, Zach? Twenty eight, twenty nine. I'm. I'm twenty five. You're younger than me. Da Daniel, you guys yeah, spent quality time together as teenagers, and you don't have a clue how old Zach is. Zach, I totally thought you were older than me. Wow. No, you're like, you're like a year and something older than me. I think I'm, like two, 19, I'm, 
I'm 93. You're 95, I guess. Oh, yeah. Dang. Yeah, 95. Okay. April 95, yeah. Wow, all right. I'm not a real friend. <laughs> you, okay. <laughs> I know. Shut it's up, all good. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> right, it's fun. Yeah, I think it's just, uh, maybe it's just like your level of maturity. Um, I kind of interpreted that as you being older. But anyway, so our question, our senior question is, would you rather, you know, you're 25 now, would you rather uh, join the military? And this would be, I guess, the Sudanese military. Um, that's a, that's or, a, this is a really awkward question, actually, given Zach's background. Hey, I mean, we're going to make it happen, dude. Yeah, all right. Or, okay, how about this? Or would you join the American military? Or would you become a stand-up comedian? Hmm. Uh, okay. <laughs> good one. Um, okay. Not I don't know if it's a good one. <laughs> okay. I mean, not the Sudanese army because with I'm with I'm with you there because of their history. Yes. Uh, hmm. The American one. I think I would just be okay. I think I would want to bring joy into people's hearts and just make jokes that make them laugh and just forget about whatever's wrong with the world. So I think I would just be a stand-up comedian. I, I, like I love I love that answer. That's a great answer. Yeah. Right on. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> Very cool. Well, so when are you coming to the states again, Zach? Uh. I know. I mean, if I if I get into the school in California, then hopefully the fall of twenty twenty one. Based on your story, crossed. yeah, fingers crossed uh, from us for sure. Uh, you mentioned Mama Lance, and I I'm picking up on a uh, you have a a deep affection for Mama. Mm-hmm. What, what Daniel and I are calling Mama Lance on uh, the podcast, but Amelia Lance. Uh, She's going to listen to this, I assume. Uh, any, any message you want to share with her? Uh, yeah, I would definitely say, like, thank you for, you know, for, I don't know, believing in me and, you know, just, yeah, believing in me and having faith in me and, uh, yeah, getting me into the Boy Scouts, uh, introducing me to your family and treating me like a son, even though sometimes I can be a pain in the ass. You would. <laughs> yeah. I wouldn't deny that. I wouldn't say yeah, I wasn't, I know I can't say I was an easy person to do it sometimes, but she, yeah, she put up with that. So she was like, Oh no, not she was like, she, until now she's like a second mom to me, like someone that I can, always reach out to and talk to about anything without feeling that I can be judged or yeah, just being told anything that is mean. So yeah, so I'm grateful for that and grateful for the, yeah, like I'm I'm also grateful for the advice that I, you know, that I was able to get from my, even if I didn't think that those things were right or I just didn't, one of them because I was just stubborn sometimes, but yeah, but I'm just, I'm grateful for that. And I would think I'm a, I'm a lucky person to have encountered someone like her. So yeah, it's just definitely one of those people that I will for the rest of my life 
remember, you know. So yeah, if, if you're calling yourself lucky, I, I don't know what that makes Paul and me. But uh, right, yeah, I think it's I think your story is amazing, and you you really you've been working so hard for so many years to turn it into something positive and and really give back and mm-hmm. change the world. So it's really uh, inspiring to listen to you talk and tell your story. And thanks so much for sharing it with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. Zach, you, you, you've lived an amazing story, even though you're only 25. I wish you nothing but the best. <laughs> and I love the positivity that you're bringing to everything that you get involved in and, and touch it. And that, that's now and future uh, endeavors. So we wish you all the luck. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, brother. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe through whichever app you're using. To share your thoughts, head over to our website at podso1.io, and there you can comment on episodes or send us feedback directly. Thanks for listening.